As you take your seats, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings. We're going to be in chapter 3 of 2 Kings. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 308, 308 in your Pew Bibles. Those of you who are alert, realize that we're going back a chapter now. Uh, to be quite honest, Second Kings chapter 3 wouldn't have been the best Easter sermon. And those who have read ahead know that this might be one of those chapters that if we weren't committed to preaching through books of the Bible, we might just say, you know what, little confusing, let's just put that aside and go somewhere else. And yet we are committed to preaching all of God's Word the full counsel of God's Word. And so we come to a passage of Scripture that has a lot of questions. We ask ourselves as we read it, what what is happening here? What What is the Lord teaching us through this text? For as we'll see at the end of chapter 3, we read in verse 27 something that throws us off. Something that's a bit of a plot twist that we did not expect. So let us turn our attention to 2 Kings chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read to the end of the chapter. So hear now the word of the Lord. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. 
But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Hareseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom. But they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you this morning and we come to your word because we believe that your word is life and that it is truth. And we pray, O God, that as we read and as we listen to your word, that you would give to us your spirit that we might see its truth. And that it might not only be information that we receive in our minds, but that it might be grace given to us that our hearts might be changed. That we might believe in Christ. That we might rest in Christ and we might walk in the assurance of what Christ has done for us. We pray this in His holy name. Amen. It may be the most famous of all plot twists in science fiction and maybe in all of film, at least for my generation. Luke Skywalker has been battling Darth Vader's evil plots for two films now. And at the end of the second film, the two Jedis finally fight it out. 
Back and forth the battle goes. And then in a dramatic moment, Darth Vader reveals a deep secret. Since the first film, we were led to believe that Vader had killed Luke's father. But in the midst of the battle, Vader declares, Luke, I am your father. And with this one reveal, the whole Star Wars trilogy takes on new meaning. You begin to look back over the films and realize that you should have seen this coming. So many things you overlook now become extremely relevant to the story. It's a classic plot twist. And in our passage for this morning, we are given quite a plot twist. As we read the story of Jehoram and his battle against rebellious Moab, we might be lulled into believing that the story is rather straightforward. While it is filled with miraculous events, the overall thrust of the story has been seen before. Israel fights a foreign power and by the help of the Lord achieves a great victory. And if we stop reading at verse 26 and don't go on to verse 27, that is the idea that we will come away with. The Lord helps Israel to defeat rebellious Moab. But when we read verse 27, everything that has has come before is now seen in a new light. Listen to verse 27 again. Speaking of the king of the Moabites, Mesha, it says, Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel. And they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Now, we need to understand what is being said in this verse, if we are to understand the whole passage. Now first, the king of Moab performs child sacrifice to Chemosh, the god of fire, a god of Moab. And so he burns his son to this god of fire in an attempt to turn the fortunes of the battle in his favor. Second, great wrath comes against Israel seemingly in response to this sacrifice. And third, after this wrath comes against Israel, they withdraw from the battle. Even though they were winning the battle up to this point in time, once this wrath comes against them, they withdraw from the battle and they return home. That is to say, they lose the battle ultimately. They do not achieve its final goals. Now, the whole time we believe that Israel is going to win, the whole time we believe that the Lord will give them victory, but at the last moment, great wrath comes against Israel and they flee from the battle. Now, there are many opinions on what is meant by great wrath. Some say that this wrath is coming from the people of Moab. In response to the sacrifice that their king makes, the people of Moab rally and they defeat Israel. Or that Israel is not the subject of the wrath, but rather they are the ones filled with wrath against Moab. 
because of Moab's wickedness. And in response to the wicked act of the Moabite king, they leave the battle. They're disgusted with what Moab has done and they're like, we're not even going to fight them anymore. However, I think that both of these explanations don't deal with the reality of the text. They're like a Star Wars fan that thought Vader was just lying in the midst of this battle to gain the upper hand. He's just trying to throw Luke off. There's no way he's actually Luke's father. They don't want to deal with the reality that the plot twist brings. But the most straightforward and consistent explanation is that this great wrath is the Lord's, and it's directed at Israel. Of the five times that this phrase, great wrath, is used in God's Word, four of them refer to the Lord's wrath against Israel because of their infidelity to the covenant. So, for example, in Jeremiah 21, the Lord says to His people, in response to the rebellion, it says, I myself will fight against you. With outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger, in fury, and in great wrath. This is the plot twist of 2 Kings 3. The whole time, everyone believes that the Lord is fighting on Israel's side. Maybe only Elisha knows what is really going to happen. We assume upon the Lord's promises... And it makes us blind to the fact that the Lord is not fighting for Israel, but rather He is fighting against Israel. To use the language of Jeremiah 21, with an outstretched hand and a strong arm. This is the plot twist Jehoram should have seen coming, and maybe even did see coming, but was ultimately blinded by his own pride and assumption of the Lord's blessing on his sinful behavior. And this is the lesson from our text for this morning. It is so easy for us to be blind to our own sin. While someone may have many outward blessings, unless they are accompanied by true faith in the Word of God, they will only lead to destruction. Or to put it another way, it is only by faith that our eyes are truly opened And we are delivered from God's great wrath. Now, when we get to 2 Kings chapter 3, we believe that we have seen this story before. And we have in in some way. At least we have seen stories that are very similar. Israel and Judah team up to take on a foreign foe, even as we saw in 1 Kings chapter 22. If you can remember back a few chapters. Again, Jehoshaphat calls for a prophet to give the king's direction in the battle that is about to ensue. It all sounds very familiar. We also see many similarities to the Exodus narrative itself. The story of Israel coming out of Egypt and taking the land of Canaan. This is the great turning point of salvation for the nation of Israel. First, the route that they are taking through Edom into Moab 
is the same route taken by the Israelites as they position themselves to enter Canaan. It doesn't make sense that they took this route, even as the text says it was circuitous. It made it so that they were left without water, but it is showing that they are, in a sense, reliving the exodus and the conquest of Canaan. We also have a miraculous supply of water, even as Israel was given miraculous water on their way to Canaan. We have water turning red like the Nile was turned red in the Exodus. We have a foreign army that's defeated by the water itself. This time not the Red Sea coming down upon them, but now the red water deceiving the people of Moab. It appears that this battle is like Israel's exodus. The Lord is moving to give them a miraculous victory. And all of these linkages to Israel's past blind us to that, so that we believe this is a war that will lead to their victory. Not only these shadows of past glories, but we also have this word from the prophet Elisha. He says, starting in verse 16 of our text, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. Right? The Lord is providing this miraculous water. Then he goes on to say, He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Jehoram has a word from the Lord that Moab will be given into his hand. He has a word from the Lord that predicts his army will bring destruction to the land of Moab. What more does he need to be confident of his victory? He's walking in the path that Israel walked in its exodus and its conquest of Canaan. And now he has a word from the Lord. But what we do not see until the end, what the plot twist reveals is that the shadows of the past are not pointing to Israel's ultimate victory, nor is this word meant for Jehoram's ultimate success, but rather for their defeat. The Lord has set a trap for Jehoram. Even as the prophet Isaiah says of the Lord's relationship to a rebellious people. In Isaiah chapter 8. And he will become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Israel believed that they were marching towards victory Because they had received all of these outward blessings. They were given miraculous water. They were given a word from the prophet. They were even given a great initial victory over Moab. And even though there are many clues that should alert us that not everything is as it seems, we are often blinded by our own sinfulness when we experience outward success. We think that if we're healthy, financially stable, and relationally sound, that obviously God is with us. When everything is going well for us, we do not examine our lives as we should, but we assume that our outward successes and blessings equate to God's overall acceptance 
of our lives. In every story with a great plot twist, there are signs throughout that point to what is eventually going to happen. Yet we fail to see them until the end, until the ultimate reveal. Then we look back and we wonder how we could have missed them. Here are a few things that we should have seen in this text. First, we should have realized that the parallel battle in 1 Kings 22, where Israel and Judah teamed up, is not a good sign. Ahab and Jehoshaphat lost that battle against Syria. They received a false word from the prophets, and the true prophet Micaiah initially gave a deceptive word to Ahab. Finally, Ahab, king of Israel, dies in this battle. This connection should have made us suspicious of another alliance between these two countries. It should have made us look closer at the word from Elisha. It should have made us wary to believe that all was well in this campaign. Second, we should have seen that Israel is breaking the Mosaic Covenant throughout this campaign. On the plains of Moab, Moses had delivered the law to the people of Israel. And three laws in particular that Moses delivered were being broken by Israel in this text. The most obvious violation is false worship. The chapter begins by telling us that Jehoram was continuing in the sin of Jeroboam. If you forgot, this series of sermons is about kingdoms in conflict. The Lord raising up Elijah and Elisha against the kingdom of Omri. Second, Israel was not to enslave the Moabites or take their land. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, we read this, The Lord says to Israel, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. You see, Moab, the land of Moab was the possession of Lot's offspring. It was not to be the possession of Israel. It was not their inheritance. It was not their land. Therefore, this campaign against Moab is breaking God's law. And finally, Israel's scorched earth warfare is not in line with how the Lord commands His people to conduct war. Again, from the book of Deuteronomy, We read in chapter 20, verse 19, When you besiege a city, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that that they should be besieged by you? You see, we should have seen that Israel was continuously breaking God's law throughout this campaign. And third, while there are many connections to the Exodus story, there's one big glaring problem. Israel is not the oppressed nation in this narrative. Rather, it is Moab that is the oppressed nation. 
subjected to servanthood. They are the ones who are facing insurmountable odds. They are the slaves who are trying to throw off their cruel overlords. Any remembrance of the Exodus story should not give us confidence of Israel's ultimate victory, but rather Moab's. This story is a strange, twisted parody of the Exodus. One in which the enemy of Israel is ultimately delivered. The parallel is even reflected in the final sacrifice of the king's son. A perverse Passover of the firstborn is offered that the nation of Moab might be delivered. All of these signs should have alerted us to the surprise ending. We should have seen it coming. But we didn't. Why? Because as we read, we're pulled into believing that because the outward signs of blessing are present, that they will lead to salvation. But if the Lord's blessing is not received in faith and obedience, it only leads to destruction and defeat. And as the Moabite king offers his perverse Passover sacrifice to his false god, the reveal happens. The true God's wrath breaks out against Israel. Not because God received or honored this child's sacrifice. No, it is an abomination to God that a man would offer his son as a burnt offering to a false god. This is a gross display of paganism. But rather, wrath broke out because it was the final piece of evidence to display that this inverted Exodus story, Israel, had become evil. They were the oppressor. And the complete and utter brokenness of the world was on complete display. For both Moab and Israel lose this war. You see, the word of God comes to pass. Yes, Israel strikes a great blow against Moab, but it ultimately leads to Israel's own defeat. While the Lord brings destruction to Moab through Israel as predicted, He also brings defeat to Jehoram and to the kingdom of Omri. And this is the hard truth that we have to come to terms with as we read this passage. If the Lord's blessings are not received in faith and obedience, they only lead to destruction. There may be a period of outward blessing, but if you're not pursuing the Lord in faith, these blessings will only lead to blindness to your own lost state. For the Israelites believed because they had the right heritage, they could do as they pleased and God would just bless it. The image the Bible uses of those who are blinded by their own blessings to the future destruction to come is that of being fattened for the day of slaughter. Before you would take your sheep to the butcher, you want to fatten him up a bit, right? Make sure he has a good marble on him. But the sheep thinks, I've hit the jackpot. Now, I don't know what I'm doing to be fed so well, but I must be doing something right. So I'm going to eat up. The ending of our story, of each of our stories, comes at the return of Christ. This is our highest hope. 
This is the end of all of our sorrow and strife and shame. The return of Christ means that all things will be made new and we will be joined with Christ for all eternity. It is our ultimate salvation when all injustice and war and hunger and fear and disease will all be ended. And those who are in Christ will be invited into the great inheritance of a renewed heaven and earth to dwell with Christ for all eternity. This is the great blessing towards which we are marching. This is our exodus out of this broken world into the new heavens and the new earth. And yet, there will be many in that day that will receive a surprise ending. We read in the book of Matthew, Jesus says in chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be many who believe that they are receiving the blessings of God and doing His work. But Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. It will be the most horrible of plot twists. There will be scores of Jehoram's. Men and women who went to church their whole lives, who practiced and participated in all the church activities, baptized, confirmed, taking communion, listened to the promises of the gospel, went forward, prayed a prayer, and were really, really nice people. They had happy marriages, healthy kids, and nice incomes. They will have all the outward blessings that you could imagine, and they will be cast into utter darkness because they did not know Christ. For Jesus will say, I never knew you. Because all of these blessings were not received in faith and obedience. And on that day, every blessing will become the very evidence and the very burden and weight against their unfaithful souls. You see, the very means that are devised for the salvation of God's people will also be the means of destruction for those who reject the Lord and His promises. If you hear the Word, but do not receive it in faith, if you receive baptism, but never submit to Christ in your heart, if you partake of the Lord's Supper, but do not discern Christ as your Savior, if you're raised in a Christian home, sing hymns, praise songs, give your monthly tithe, but do not have faith in Christ, then the day of Christ's return will be a day of a horrible plot twist. And all of these blessings will be the weight that pull you downward to destruction. For the saddest plot twist will be that many on the day of Christ will say, Lord, Lord. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. Another classic plot twist in science fiction movies is that of the Planet of the Apes. If you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, the spoiler alert, but I think it came out sometime in the 70s, so if you haven't seen it yet, it's your fault. Charlton Heston's character has traveled to some distant planet, we believe, where ape-like creatures live, and 
he's trying to get free from these ape-like creatures the whole time. But towards the end of the movie, Heston's character is walking along the beach and to his surprise, he sees the remains of the Statue of Liberty. It turns out that he hasn't traveled to some distant land. He's traveled into the future, a future where humans have destroyed themselves and now apes rule. There were many clues that should have made Heston's character see what was coming, but he didn't want to see it. And even as we watch the movie, we realize, man, we should have seen this coming. How were we so blind to the reality before Throughout his life, the Lord Jesus told his disciples that there was going to be a plot twist at the end of his life. He warns them repeatedly that he is going to Jerusalem and there he is going to be betrayed, will be tried, convicted, beaten, crucified, will die, but will rise from the dead on the third day. What a plot twist. He will die, but his death will lead to life and salvation. He'll be killed on Friday, but on Sunday... He'll be alive again. And it is this plot twist in which we must place our faith. Though the world is not willing to accept it, we must believe that the Lord Jesus Christ conquered the grave and that by His rising we too will rise. This is where our faith must be placed. You must see that by your sin, you deserve great wrath from God to break out against you. But the Lord Jesus Christ stood in your place. He offered himself as a sacrifice to cleanse his people from their sin, to remove the wrath of God from us and to secure for us life everlasting so that on the day of Christ, we will not be sent away, but we will be received as a child of God. You can have assurance that this is your ending. For all of those who repent of their sin and place their full faith and trust in Christ, their lives will end with a plot twist. But not for the worse, but for the better. For at that very moment when life is ending, true and full life will come. And though the body will go down in humility and weakness into the grave, it will be raised up in strength and glory on the day of Christ. I know that there are some of you who are fearful of such a plot twist. In your own hearts, you wonder, how do I know that God's work will lead to my salvation and not my destruction? We become uneasy when we read passages like this from 2 Kings. But God's Word gives us great assurance. For the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, assurance of salvation comes not when all the outward things of life are going right for you, but as you look to the Lord Jesus Christ in His work, not your work. You have faith in His goodness, not your goodness. So do not be blinded. Do not be fooled. Do you believe in your heart that God gives you life because of the resurrection of Christ? Then have faith that when you come to the point of death, God will cause the tide to turn. He will cause the plot to twist. And life, not wrath, but life everlasting will come to you.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Almighty God, we come to you at this time, and Lord, we confess that we are so often blinded by our own sin. Lord, and that we look to the outward circumstances of life, believing that if things are going well, then we must be doing something right. And if things are difficult, that we must be doing something wrong. Lord, but your word tells us a different truth. For your word teaches us that as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, that that is where our assurance lies. In his death. In his blood poured out for us. And in his resurrection from the dead. Oh, would you give us the grace that we might believe it in faith and walk in obedience all of our days. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.